This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Three Wise Monkeys podcast, a weekly podcast that's all about the markets and investing. My name is Andrew Page, founder of strawman.com, and today I'm joined by Matt Joss from mattjoss.com and Claude Walker from ethicalequities.com.au. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Andrew. Very happy to be here. Good day, mate. What are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to talk about uh, WiseTech, uh, a company that's just done a pretty big, or in the process of a pretty big capital raising. Uh, we're going to talk about leverage. Claude's going to run us through some thoughts on that. Andrew, I believe you're going to talk about Fluence, a, a, a company. Sure. <laughs> it is a company. <laughs> um, position sizing. I'm going to chat a little bit about position sizing. Uh, then we're going to touch on uh, fan favorite Prometicus that Claude's going to give an update on. Excellent. Uh, and last but not least is uh, we're going to talk about recessions and, and how you time your selling around them, uh, I guess, if you can if you can potentially see them coming. Very interesting. Well, let's dive straight into it. Now, WiseTech we have touched on very recently. In fact, it might have been last week, was it? But uh, when we were getting together, we thought we should, t- we should update things here a little bit because they've done a pretty big capital raising. Matt, do you want to take us through it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, pretty big, pretty big block of capital they're raising and not for an uh, immediate use, which is interesting, kind of building a war chest. So yeah. they're raising $250 million um, from institutions. They're in the process of that book build now. Uh, and then they're going to do another $30 million, um, through a, a share placement to to retail and everybody else. It's a, that part, I think, is really a token gesture to yeah. let you let you buy in. Um, which but, which yeah. is fair, though. Yeah, right? which is good. Like We like that people get a, an opportunity to invest. It's not just um, restricted to the institutions. You know what? Sorry to interrupt, but I think I think there are sometimes there are arguments that when there is a very urgent need of capital, like there's an opportunity that's come, we, there's a, there's an acquisition that we can make if we act now. We've got to move very quickly. You just said that there's actually no. This is just the further prosecution of their strategy. So mm. I kind of think in that situation there is no excuse not to give ordinary shareholders the same opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a very fair call. The only reason you wouldn't normally is maybe because it's rushed and you need to get that funding. So in that case, now. they have a pretty good opportunity. Yeah, so they're offering it at a discount of maybe 7 to 12% from the share price beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, raising a big block of capital. And this is part of their strategy. So uh, again, just to say about WiseTech, does software for logistics, um, have a very big global footprint now. And their strategy is in part um, acquiring a lot of what they call like geographic footholds. So these are very small um, businesses. Normally, they like to acquire a leading kind of customs or freight forwarder forwarding company um, in a whole lot of different jurisdictions. So 40 countries, the G20 plus another 20 countries mm. uh, that are responsible for, I think, over 90% of world trade. And they acquire those thing, uh, those companies. They're often, um, not, they're not really software companies. They're like small offices, which have a lot of know-how on how customs work is done in that area and that type of thing. And they kind of use that to get that deep know-how, get a, a foothold um, much faster. And as they kind of break it out, like safer and, um, and kind of starting fuck more quickly it's like rather than going and you know figuring out how to do business in latin america you acquire a company there and then kind of roll out your software into their systems make everything a bit more efficient hopefully that make that company a lot better so yeah to me it's like do you believe in the strategy that they're prosecuting Mm. um it has been going fairly well i think uh revenue i think was up 60 percent last year um and some of that's acquisitions but a good chunk uh, uh, the majority is organic so it is still 
organically driven, people get um, pretty concerned about all the acquisitions. Mm. Uh, the big uh, concern would be probably if they're deviating from that strategy or if it just seems to stop working for some reason, if they're not able to continue growing organically and all, all that kind of good stuff. Can I ask you a question? Just remind me of their, uh, prior to this raising their balance sheet, I, I thought they did, they actually had a fair whack of cash and not too much debt there and all of that kind of stuff anyway. Was, is this not just a continuation of a strategy, but an acceleration of the strategy? Yeah, so they have done some capital raises in the past. They recently um, purchased a container chain for oh, 90 right. million, that's which right. drained the coffers a fair bit. And they have done these um, capital raises before. They've done a 100 million placement before. Um, they, they shy away from using debt. Um, the founder just doesn't seem to like that um, too much. So yeah, keep it on the on the equity side and, and yeah, a pretty big opportunity. Well, when you're trading at 20 times sales, 20 times what it is, like 21 that is, times. That is a very, like you, when you, regardless of your ideological preference um, of debt or mm. not, it's kind of like the cost of capital, just to get nerdy for a second, is so cheap when you're, when you're able to sell your shares at that multiple, right? So just one question, when they're doing these acquisitions, are they at sufficiently low market, um, multiples that you could see this sort of uh, raise capital at a high price, buy something at a lower multiple and you've got this multiple ar- arbitrage thing going on? Yeah, so to a degree, I think the companies that are buying the geographic footholds are very low multiple um, because they're just these small businesses that are mostly people. Um, some of the bigger companies, they buy like the software stuff that they build in is a bit higher multiple. But I guess that kind of comes back to whether you trust them executing the strategy. So as as you say, Claude, there, there is often um, kind of a, a CEO manager who might not own that many shares is trying to pump up and get a, you know, meet his EBITDA numbers. And so um, these acquisition strategies can be driven by that and that's often where it goes wrong uh, one thing uh, with WiseTech is the the founder and CEO Richard White owns about three billion dollars worth over half the company um, so he it's obviously his view that this is like long-term wealth creation I've never got any sense that he um, was interested in what the public markets thought if anything kind of the attitude was general disdain so yeah but it, it does depend you know you have to trust that that strategy works okay final quick question uh, you are a shareholder correct Matt I am a shareholder yeah bought a few years ago will you be participating in the retail component I won't be so it's looking like it won't be much of a discount um, maximum of maybe seven percent the shares will probably fall a little uh, once they're out of a trading halt. I don't, it's probably just not worth it um, for me. Uh, and the valuation is also kind of on the edge of which what I'm comfortable with, which yeah. you mentioned last week, I think. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay. So let's move right along and let's talk about leverage. Lord, give us, give us a bit of a, uh, we've, we've touched on this before. You sort of hinted in previous episodes that you like a little bit of leverage. Um, in fact, I think we've got a bit of a, a question on well, this. Well, uh, wait a second. Like, so what I've said before is that, you know, I have had leverage in, in my life and I've also talked about options, which is another form of, of leverage. But yeah, as, as you said, we've got a question. Why don't you go to that first? Yeah, it's from Toby and it was a really good one. He says that Claude recently published an article on ethical equities where he mentioned his portfolio is 70% leverage, but that doesn't bother him because he has an option to pay the debt down slowly and over time. It got me wondering about the appropriate use of leverage in investing. You know, obviously it does increase your upside, but it also increases your downside as well. Given this, is leverage only appropriate for expert professional investors or is there a way for retail investors like myself to utilize this within a reasonable risk tolerance? What do you reckon? Yeah, so I think it's a great question, although we should probably just be really clear at the outset. It's, it could slightly um, misunderstand what how I use leverage. So what I actually said on ethical equities was I gave a disclosure saying that I'm going to be selling some shares. I said, 
Um, back in 2013, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, so I borrowed money. And then in 2016, I borrowed more money so that we could buy a house near the Bellinger River, lots of trees, good for my asthma, really quite beautiful. Mm. Now, that loan, I sort of, rather than sell my entire portfolio at the time, I sold maybe some of my portfolio or a bit under half and then took out a loan. Mm-hmm. And that loan is not secured against my portfolio. It is not a margin loan. It is just a loan to do with the house, the mortgage, which yeah. has a low interest rate and um, flexible repayment structure. Well, that's one of the points that Toby makes in his email. He said, actually, for example, drawing down on my home loan, where I don't have that that call, where the bank doesn't have that capacity to call and force the sale on your shares, where they do with a margin loan. So, uh, what kind of level do you think is is appropriate? Um, in terms of you know your lending ratio, is it something that you'd be comfortable with? you personally? Yeah. So so the reason that I like wrote this post was because actually I was saying over the next couple of days or weeks I intend to liquidate some of like ten to twenty percent of my portfolio in order to basically pay off some of that housing debt. And it makes no sense it on because the, podcast too. the returns that I've been getting on my portfolio are much higher than the return like, than what I pay on the on that loan and that loan is no threat to me Mm -hmm. so basically um it doesn't make financial sense for me to be paying this off and it does make financial sense for you to very modestly or not for you and this is definitely an advice it does make financial sense for me to very modestly use like a low interest rate loan that Mm -hmm. i might pay five percent on and then invest you know in the last year i made over 30 percent for the last couple of years so it's a it's a big extra return to me. But when I was actually in a position to pay off that loan, I really had to force myself not to. And say, so like, no, stay invested. And, and thank God I did because I'd be absolutely crying if I'd sold all, all my shares in everything just to pay it off then. Since then, my portfolios, since 2016, you know, it's almost tripled. Maybe it's, le- it's a bit more than doubled. Okay. Thank God I kept it on there, but I'm gradually going to take some off. And that's partly to do with the fact that I feel like the market is quite hyped up now. Okay, so that's that's how it's that's how the chips have fallen. But as from a more stand back, more general, more kind of you know um, yeah. theoretical kind of basis, is this something that? And to get to Toby's question here, is something who's perhaps more new to investing? Is it something that you can do in a sensible way? Yeah. Or is or is it just a no? So my gut feeling is I would never want to like say any kind of encouragement to anybody to do that. It's just it just goes against every bone in my body. Like, mm-hmm. As I said, I had to force myself to do that. I'm someone who's like choosing to make my career in this. So basically, I say less leverage is safer and safer is usually good. I think that's a really good point that Claude made. Um, and he's you know not borrowing on margin. It's a different type of loan. And there's also different types of leverage, right? So um, as we talk about quite often, a lot of the companies we like to invest in have operating leverage. So a little bit of revenue turns into a lot of profit. Um, and that leverage does add its own risk to your portfolio. So like when, when, when revenue falls for any reason, profit's going to fall much greater. So that's its own form of leverage that you're, you're getting it, you know, just as part of investing in the share market. Plus, if some of your companies have debt, I know generally we don't like debt but some of them do that's its own leverage so there's all these other kind of risks i guess that you can choose with your portfolio that means you don't um need necessarily to to leverage by going out and, and doing a margin loan um, and there are folks that do that absolutely um but it's uh, it definitely comes with a lot more risk uh, i kind of think of it like um uh, having all your eggs in one basket, you need to have a very strong handle on the basket. And uh, yeah, I think it's just something that you, it, it, I wouldn't advise it particularly for um, someone who's just starting out. I think you need to. Um, 
make well, sure you're comfortable. With well, not even for someone starting out. Buffett's famous for say, sort of saying that leverage is the only way a smart man can go broke. Um, yeah. You know, we've, we've, there's a lot of examples of very smart people who have, who have gone wrong. My, my quick, uh, very quick two cents is I actually do have a margin loan, um, but I just never have it drawn. So it's, I use it like a credit card. It's, it's just there in case. So if for whatever reason, because I've got money tied up in my business and my so various You're advising credit cards now? <laughs> no, it just, it just means that if all of a sudden... For, and, use and, it as a credit card. Well, you should probably clear that one up. You're not going and buying a couch with your margin loan. No, I'm absolutely not. <laughs> but it means that for what... And in fact, I've never had to do this, but if I, I like having it there that if for any reason, there's yeah. a reason that I'm really compelled to, to buy shares today, yeah. rather than having to sell something and move, transfer some cash around, etc., etc., I can just do it. And then I can sort that yeah, all see, out later. And I, you know, I pay virtually nothing so, for that. So it's with no intention of carrying that debt for any meaningful period of time. Yeah, so what I do is I just have cash sitting in that account, like le- earning no interest, which is like pretty probably probably pretty stupid. Well, that's another advantage of having. I think the, the, the main line. the main game is making the right investments and doing it without blowing up. Uh, my, I guess my last thought on the question of leverage is there is this sort of terrible trope that people misapply to investing that you know the more risk must equal the more reward mm. that's not generally true but no. when it comes to leverage that's pretty much what that's that rule is about that's just a scale you're taking on more more risk for more reward and you know ultimately the potential more potential more reward and more potential yeah. Lower. Yeah. yeah ultimately i think you know as one mentor once said to me uh not that i want to completely glorify getting rich but he said to me you know Claude, just get rich slowly. Yeah, much safer. And I think that that's a better attitude to have. Yeah, if you can get the returns, you don't need it. Okay. Let's talk Fluence. Um, let me guys give you a very quick uh, rundown of this company. Uh, these guys, uh, they describe themselves as a specialist decentralized water company. And basically they make these modular kind of plants. So don't think so much about these big water utilities, although they do do that, but these little small things that you can use in industrial areas, in mining sites, uh, in agricultural areas. And it's a fairly new company. Um, It's a relatively small company. Uh, It came out uh, from the merger in 2017 between a a small ASX listed company called MFC and a US-based engineering company called RWL. So the former one sort of providing the tech, and the later one providing sort of the industry presence and know-how, been in 70 different countries, a whole bunch of installations. And the tech is all around this thing called a patented membrane aerated biofilm reactor, which is just a fancy, uh, I guess, lattice that bacteria can um, adhere to and and basically remove nitrogen and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, from the water. So it's very fast to install. It's very cost-effective. It's a proven technology. Just zooming in on that, it's a proven technology who's it proven by excellent question my friend who's it so, proven to yeah and so they've done a whole bunch <laughs> I don't of remember them calling me up about this <laughs> <laughs> i haven't um, seen the information yeah so they've um they've done a whole bunch of viability studies the one that they usually point to though there's they've got a demonstration plant in uh, stanford over in the u.s it's been running for a while now in fact only in the last few months they released yet another study which said that it complies to the very very strict californian water codes there in terms of nitrogen and all the particulate kind of stuff that they look to get out so look you know it's as proven as that kind of stuff gets um, and that's a wonderful reference site as well so like, like when I think personally when I hear something like that I go yeah it's very sexy but but why am I going to believe that how many how many companies out there talk about this exciting tech that's going to take over the world um, I think on one area it's a very very attractive space there are huge water problems around the world in terms of the cleanliness availability of water and um, this is something that is only getting worse with climate change and um, 
So I think it's a very, very fast growing area. But moreover, these guys have actually got some real demonstrable growth here. Their revenue has been growing very strongly over the last couple of years. So in fact, just recently, the most recent quarter was a 73% growth in revenue from the previous corresponding period. It was a 50% increase on just the preceding quarter as well. So the revenue here is growing really, really strongly. China is a big part of this as well. China's most recent five-year plan, they dedicated 15 billion US dollars for funding rural wastewater treatment as well. Influence has secured some early leads in this area. Um, uh, they've got some good partnership arrangements. So it, it's all kind of interesting. And so that's the good kind of stuff about it. The bad stuff, and there is definitely bad stuff. One thing that annoys me is these guys announce the opening of an envelope. Like you look at the <laughs> ASX announcements, like there's an ounce and like yeah. 10 announcements a day and they'll announce the most small, pathetic kind of contract win. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a little bit promotional. Mrs. We're, Smith bought a filter for a garden. Oh, we're yeah. not to announce it to the ASX. <laughs> Wait, so let's call I it mean, market sensitive. So... I don't own any shares myself, um, but I'm watching it closely. I do have a recommendation on Strawman of it because I think that when it started to come down, like as you say, it was it was well up there and it came right back down. It got down and often the pendulum swings too far in both directions for these kinds of companies. So it got down to about 30 cents or so. And these guys, while still being cash flow negative, they've got about 38 US million in the bank. Um, and they've, they're fast approaching this break-even point, so it's a bit of an inflection point that is coming up. Um, if they can hit that, if they can demonstrate to the market that they uh, are no longer reliant on public markets or debt markets for funding, um, uh, if they can maintain this very strong pace of growth, I think that they should easily do 50% revenue growth just based on the contracts that they've already won and the pipeline this year. Um, and after that, I think it's going to be double-digit growth for a while based on the momentum that they've got in that sales team and the leads that they've got out there. So it's it's very, very interesting. Um, it's ones to watch. I'll get to the valuation in a moment, but Matt, you wanted to say something? Yeah, just curious what their gross margin looks like. So I imagine this is a pretty um, kind of intensive business. It's not software, obviously. Uh, what does that look not like? Not everything can live up to software, <laughs> Matt. Okay. It's pretty I'm much trying to bring something different to the table. No, it's good. It's good. But um, yeah, so what does that look like? And how do you, how do, do they need to fund that? Do they need to build a factory? What needs to happen? 100%. So there's a couple of different categories or segments that they operate in. The, the, the newer, sexier stuff that's based on this membrane aerated uh, biofilm reactor kind of thing more modular stuff, far, far better margin. There's a couple of ways that they sell that where they get a lot of recurring revenue. That's really sexy. They got a big um, contract to build a plan over in the Ivory Coast. They're going against all the usual corporates there and they're razor thin margins. So last year they did about 35% gross margin. Given on some of these big wins that they've had, which are great for the revenue, but not so great on the margin, I think you could expect, over, I'm forecasting over the next couple of years, gross margin will be about 20 five percent or okay. somewhere thereabouts yep. so uh, it's decent for that mm -hmm. kind of company but certainly not 99 percent yeah, yeah gross so. margins that you see <laughs> that you see for software yeah, cool. um so yeah so they're, they're, they're they've got let me just rehash this very quickly very very high risk i get that i don't own shares myself i'm watching it very closely i think there's a, an inflection point coming up where if they can demonstrate that there's a good upside potential there is um, a bit of an asymmetry here i think that th there is there is a plausible valuation for this at 60 cents i think if it doesn't go too well in the next 12 months it's going to get down to 30 25 cents but there's more upside than downside there i've i've 
pitched my flag uh, in the ground on straw man at about 40 cents, which actually just hit today. So it's been up about 33% since the start of the year. So it's very interesting. And I bring it to the group and to our listeners as something to watch, not something to say, buy. It's a crazy yeah. buy. What, what did you just say? No, <laughs> it's a crazy buy. <laughs> uh, yeah, position sizing. Um, Andrew, I think we got a we got a question on this. Do you have it in front of you? I there? do indeed. So we got a really good question from Dave, and uh, thanks for the question, Dave. He says, uh, on, um, he believe he heard Claude say that Prometicus was 30% of his portfolio, and Matter said that he's a very concentrated investor now, more so now than he previously was. It would be great to hear your thoughts on individual position sizes and how you decide what weighting you have for each position. We'd also love to hear from Matt how it is different for his personal portfolio relative to when it was that he ran a fund. Matt, can you expand on all of that? Yeah, it's a great question. Can you question. have too much yeah, of a good, good thing? Good question, I love it. <clears throat> so position sizing is something I think about a lot. Um, to me, I'd actually make an argument in a way it's the whole game of investing because you think about a position that you're buying, you're taking it from a zero position, percent position size up to a percent position size mm. um, and when you're thinking about uh, everything to do with risk and return it's all about how you balance those positions against each other um, and I don't think it gets enough attention I think it's something that people talk about buying stocks as like a kind of a, a tip sheet kind of format where it's just a company you own it but they don't think about the relative size of each one um, so there's a bit of theory on this there's like a yeah. diversification and, and risk theory which um, kind of washes out that around between 20 to 30 companies, once you get to that level, you've benefited, you've kind of wrung all the benefits of diversification. Um, but in fact, most of them come a bit earlier. So even around 15 I've companies. I've 15, yeah. Yeah, 10 to 15, you've got the vast bulk, say 85% yeah. of that benefit. But the next level though is how you balance those against each other. So that's just taking random um, swipes of what the, the of the rest of the market, kind of arbitrarily. Yep. Uh, but the best thing, if you can do it, is to find two companies that kind of offset one another. So I, I give the analogy sometimes super simplified mm. of an ice cream store and an, an umbrella shop. Um, with regards to the weather, on sunny days, the ice cream store should be doing well and the umbrella store doing badly and vice versa on yep. rainy days. Yep. And those two companies would be like perfectly negatively correlated mm -hmm. with regards to that one risk. Um, and that's how I, how I think about building a portfolio is kind of thinking about what are all the different risks that can affect um, the companies that I own and how can I ideally find companies that offset each other that's like perfect or at least don't have a huge amount of exposure. You don't want like a, a huge chunk of the portfolio on one um, one risk. Um, is, is there also a consideration, I know there is for me and I know there is probably a leading question here, but is there also a consideration around conviction and valuation as well that you roll into all of that? Yeah, I think that's huge. So you want your biggest position sizes to be high conviction. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's something that you need to be cautious of, particularly when you're just starting as an investor, because mm -hmm. you might just find one company and it looks really great, but you know, how many are you looking at and everything else? Um, and frankly, you know, it takes a while before you can really um, get comfortable enough to know all the pitfalls that can that can happen. But yeah, conviction is a is a big deal, and um, I think that is one area where an individual that is heavily investing their time and, and research can have an advantage because a lot of fund managers will be extremely diversified um, over 100 positions is very common yeah. and the main reason they do that really is because they don't want to be too different from everyone else because yeah. 
being two different risks getting fired and getting fired means risk losing you know a couple million dollars a year salary so 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 on the downside it's it's very hard when you're that diversified to like underperform the market by 20 percent. yeah but but of course the converse is true as well yeah. it's like you know at best you might get three or you know to five percent outperformance with that kind of diversification which is when you factor in fees to my mind it's like just buy an etf right yeah 100 percent. so most fund managers would be very happy if they could just only slightly underperform and then maybe a little bit overperform sometimes yep um but you're never going to get those outsized returns which you can get by concentrating but it just takes a huge amount more work you need to know it better than anyone else who knows who owns a company i think if you're going to have a large position size mm. um, warren buffett famously had gone up to like 60 percent of his personal portfolio in geico when he was an individual right. investor when he was young it's yep. obviously an idol for all of us um, and generate exceptional returns but he is also warren buffett and the best investor of all time so yep. something to keep in mind i think basically the more you Excuse deviate me. away <laughs> the more you deviate away from from um, you know 10 to 15, that's already very concentrated. If you go more than 10% into a company, you're getting very concentrated. You need to have a really good handle on that. Know the bear case better than anyone else. Um, and there's a potential for better returns. Here's a problem that I have, and this is grade A problem, right? But it, you start off with that way, you construct a portfolio, thinking about all the things that you've thought about. And then inevitably, you know, some stocks go really well, some stocks go really bad. So a bit of time goes by and you look at your portfolio and like, lo and behold, you know, like Claude, you got 30% in, in, in one stock. Um, how do you think Yeehaw. about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think that's a, another great point. So I think um, you should be trimming and rebalancing, not constantly, but that should be a, a mechanism you lose, use a fair bit. So it's not, oh, this company had a bad quarter, I'll sell out entirely. That's when you like cut your position size from 8% to 4%. Yeah. You know, and the difference, you know, 1% position and 8% is 8 times different uh, impact on your portfolio so i think that's a good way to manage it and also when things are growing too big a position you can chuck you know cut back some i think we've all done that mm. the other point i'd make is part of that comes from not having um a, a the whole portfolio growing so the more that you can kind of find the next idea then that kind of balances each other out if you have four or five they're up a few hundred percent it's a lot easier to manage do you have a level at which you would sort of just always say, oh, I've got to start trimming something? Or would you hypothetically just let something grow to 80, 90% of your portfolio? Good question. I think um, managing professionally and the portfolio manager role as in, I'd start looking at like 10 to 12%. Um, but that's just more, there's a, f a couple of factors. One is the risk tolerance of the clients. And two is just as like as a check. But what about you personally? I'm just in terms of when you're really optimizing. Yeah, I, I'd like to think it wouldn't be so much about growing as um, targeting. Like I'd be comfortable targeting a very big percentage. Hopefully that happens earlier before it's grown a lot and then you capture more of the gains. Um, 80, 90 is way too much so, for me. So you do yeah. actually, now that you can trade, trade more freely, you actually do rebalance a fair bit? Um, I wouldn't say I re rebalance a lot. I'd say more that I'm more willing to be concentrated um, in that initial take, I guess. If I've done a lot of homework on a company, I'd be comfortable with a much larger position size to yeah. start off with. I guess I'd be interested in like when you, just one example of like when you trimmed and why, and then in the converse, when did you top up? Um, yeah, I guess one of the better ones over the last few years had been Ultium, which had um, trimmed a, a good chunk at it, like $9.00. 80 or something I think um, it was over the valuation that I had at the time it pulled back a lot felt very smart got down to seven then obviously has run up since but I think that that was like you, it's all around that idea of intrinsic value I don't think you need to throw valuation out the window so when things are getting like 20 30 percent above my best estimate of their value and I don't see much other upside that's probably where I'd start trimming is like a, a rule of thumb and I know we're running out of time but do you have a top up example 
uh, top up example. I know you do because you've told me some recently. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'll <laughs> out you. <laughs> um, yeah, there's been a lot. I think particularly when there's that pullback in December, there was quite a few. Um, Appen was one that I bought a lot more of at, at $10 um, or around there. And that, yeah, I think that's a good example. That might be the one. Yeah, that yeah. No, I think... I can't remember the exact price, but it definitely encouraged me. I think you mentioned it to me. Yeah. And I did as well. It's, it's, you have to just keep keep doing your valuation if it's like at a big it's discount. Sometimes, yeah, it's sometimes yeah. hard when it's coming down. You're like selling your other things. Yeah. You think, anyway. It's very hard. Anyway. Speaking of right, oversized next. positions, uh, <laughs> Prometicus. Oh, High conviction already. positions. Yeah. I should okay, quote, cool. it's my largest position. I've got about 30% of my oh, portfolio your large, as well. I'll wow. tell you. Yeah. Uh, very, I don't think we tell people that very, enough. Very close. <laughs> well, it's one of those, we've talked about it before. I think we, you ask Matt the question, like, can you? how often do you trim? I think you can be way too clever and do it way too often. It only I'd, hurt, I'd it go only out on a limb that it's so. bigger in our portfolios than it is in Matt's anyway. So so the so, reason, the, let me just frame this, okay, because you know a lot of people are going to be rolling their eyes in their head here. The reason that we wanted to talk about this again, so we often joke about it in each episode, so, but the company did come out with a market sensitive announcement the other day and there's more and more chatter that we're sort of seeing out there that it's just sort of like oh my gosh this thing is so ridiculously but expensive and it's a lovely example following on from that discussion is is this a prime example of something that might be good but way too expensive and is now the time but to sell also it's yeah that's the real question it's like there is a fact also that's changed in a big way there's the share price has changed a lot and we can talk about that we're not traders but it is, I'm sure that there are other people like us, Andrew. In fact, I know there are some listeners who have a big oversized ProMedicus position and they're probably thinking, oh, what should I do? Because when we talked about this stock the first time on the podcast back in November, episode three, the share price was $9.50. So obviously something is happening, but we don't know why. We don't know why the share price is up this much. Well, this, this is what's interesting about it is because I think it's really dumb, if I can be so blunt, to sort of say something's up 70% ergo you sell. It depends. Maybe the company's come out and said, hey, we're going to like quadruple our profits above what we previously thought we were going to do, in which case that makes perfect rational sense and shares could be even cheaper now, even though the share price is higher. So this is the, this is what's interesting about ProMedicus is yes, we've had some results out um, recently. Yes, we've had a few updates out. But has that in and of itself been enough to justify such a substantial rise in the price? Right. What do you reckon? And that indeed is the dilemma, right? Okay, so let's look at the valuation right now, really back of the napkin. Um, twenty nineteen revenue, I think probably a conservative, but not overly conservative guess would be around fifty million. So doubling the first half essentially. Yeah, and giving a bit and extra. A bit but that I feel like that's reasonably generous since we got an extra three million in the in yep. the first half okay. based on the capital sale, which I wouldn't expect Good again. So point. that might even be mil. too bullish. Yep. But this is all absolute ballpark approximate. EBIT margins around fifty percent. That gives you EBIT of twenty operating profit. Earnings before interest and tax, fifty percent, twenty five million on that level. So and then applying a normal tax rate of thirty percent, you'd get seventeen point five million. So at the current market cap of about 1.7 billion, that's 97 times earnings. So you said a lot of stuff there. Let's just reiterate the key point. Based on what you think that they should be able to do plausibly in 2019, is there around 100 times earnings? They're almost 100 times their earnings. Okay. And I mean, this is, I guess, for the other people like me that that own the stock and follow it. But basically, revenue is growing approximately 40% a year, maybe a bit higher, but let's say 40%. That basically means if you assume they maintain current margins, and I don't think they can really increase that much from here, that's very, very high margins, then we're looking ahead three or four years before there's sort of a modest growth, reasonable style multiple of earnings for ProMedicus. So basically that's what's saying is you're going to have some extreme revenue growth for three or four years 
that's just one scenario that what the market might be believing will happen. Mm. Maybe that's not what market participants think. But that is the question for me is why? Why are people buying this at such a high price? And all I've got is some like potential answers. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, number one for the recent run-up, which was quite a bit after results, I think the theory I like best is a friend of mine. Happy birthday. Um, She suggested that this care stream... Uh, acquisition might have something to do with it, and what's this care stream acquisition? So there's a care stream is so let's take a step back here. We've never dived that deeply on this podcast before, but there are four major competitors as I see it to Visage, their main product, uh, care stream, Agfa, Merge, and G Healthcare. Plus you've got Intellirad, and there's actually a lot of other minor competitors that actually may be the bigger threat one day, mm-hmm. but. Well, look at them. So, CareStream's one of them. Now, that has just been acquired by Philips mm. for... And this is the intriguing part. We don't know what Undisclosed. price. Mm-hmm. But if this was a very, very large amount, then um, you could imagine that maybe in some circles, there's this idea that these kind of enterprise visage style companies are worth a lot maybe ge would be interested in yeah and the other thing is like oh the other thing where you can read this is because phillips bought them you can say all right so there's a strategic value to these now Mm. so that could be putting um pressure on the share price because there's suddenly a strategic value we're not looking at earnings anymore yeah and then the other speculation i think that's not a great why is carestream selling if i mean prometica seems to be on a good thing why is carestream this is my favorite interpretation. Yeah. Carestream selling because it's too hard to compete with Prometicus and they're only <laughs> going to lose ground. Yeah. And that honestly, isn't that not that crazy? And it could sit with some of the other theories as well. A lot of sales momentum Prometicus. They, from what I could gather, they have the, the enterprise imaging at Carestream, which is obviously a bigger competitor, but with, you know, similar style satisfaction. They have like 900 employees. It's like more than 10 times the number that Prometicus has. Okay. Do you have any idea how big their revenue is, or they don't disclose that private company? I couldn't find it quick enough, and I've just been I've been looking, and we will get more with time. But mm-hmm. basically, that's it. Okay. I'm saying a competitor getting acquired at a very high multiple could highlight the value of the company. Right. Right. And we were looking at it earlier today, and like the top twenty own over eighty percent of the stock, mm. so it doesn't take. And like, I think a lot of those people have personal relationships with the company that transcend beyond you know this is on 100 times earnings so i'm going to sell so as a result of that you have a tight register which means that a little bit of speculation and hype can go a long way in terms of pushing it up and the the final point i'd say is just one bullish point that i think's flown under the radar i'm not sure how big a deal it is longer term but mercy who is their first client that has both visage and the vendor neutral archive they have you know towards the end of last year started um, saying that they're going to be like on selling their picture archiving communication s- system. So they're calling it picture archiving communication system as a service. But that's essentially like on selling part of ProMedicus's um, capabilities. So that's an interesting um, growth opportunity there. I always like to see it when someone else is selling their stuff. That's nice. And I wonder if one day that could contribute something a lot. But ultimately, that's what I've got. Right. That's you, why I'm trying you to just explain. Dumped, you just dumped a whole bunch of stuff on us very quickly there. The, the question on everyone's lips is, are you are you selling? Yes. So, like, that's why I did the disclosure that we talked about earlier. Again, we're breaking our New Year's resolution. Yeah. And, uh, yes, I definitely <laughs> yeah, am. I do disclose this New Year's <laughs> yeah, resolution. So, the, 
That's a new. Yeah, so Claude, I believe your New Year's resolution was to not sell any ProMedica shares this year. Yes. And then you sold some in February. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now you're saying you're going to so sell So I lasted more. the typical amount of time. Yeah, I like for a that. New Year's the typical resolution. amount. How so how much, how much are you going to sell? Uh, so Percentage I wise. I've not. Um, I think I've sold less than 10% of, of my, in recent times, of my ProMedica shares. And I'm not saying I'm like completely finished, but. There's a certain round number that I'm sitting on and I'm like, oh, I don't want to go beneath it. So, there we go. That's okay. how rational I am. Um, but yeah, it's still my biggest position and it's actually today, it's 36%. Yeah. Excellent. All right, gents, let's all right. wrap it up. <laughs> you don't want to do the last question. Oh, let's not. <laughs> all right, this. All right, gents. Next <laughs> Andrew's like, question. we finished on a high. <laughs> Prometicus, end of story. Thank you. Nothing Good night. Else to say. Mic drop. <laughs> Uh, all right. What's the last one? Oh, yeah, it's my question. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna do this super, super quick. No, no, we're, don't. We'll, we'll just take do this question and then we're good. Yeah, we'll wish yeah. everyone a good evening. Well, it, there wasn't a lot to say. Did someone want to read out the question for me? Okay, so we've got a two part question from Brad. Uh, one part of it, which I think is our focus today, is uh, what indicators or topics are you guys watching that would give you a, a hint that the, the market re- might react to a possible recession? And then the second part is more, I guess, about him asking, like, should I, you know, do you sell your winners in, in fear of losing what you've had? And, and uh, basically, like, more of a question about how, how reactive you should be to yeah, that. Yeah, what, what signs are there that a recession could be coming and what, what do you do in the event that, that you, you start to get pretty bearish? And we've been pretty bearish on this before. And there's perhaps another follow-up question to those. What do you do when we actually find that, you know, unequivocally we, we are kind of in one? So I, um, I, I would say this. I would say that the, the market is always worried about a recession. It's this old joke that is just such a good one, which is economists have predicted 11 out of the last three recessions. And 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 so I think that if you're going to be the kind of inv- the, and the market market generally goes up over time. Well, it has always gone up over time, over the long time. So you have, you are really, you are really putting the odds against you if you're going to jump at every shadow that comes your way, because a lot of shadows are going to come your way. And there's going to be a lot of false positives out there in the sense, there's going to be a lot of things that look, oh man, it's definitely happening. And then it doesn't. So I think A, don't try to predict it because the smartest people in the world have trouble predicting it. And those that do predict it, they get lucky once and they, they, they find it very difficult to repeat that trick again. Um, uh, the other thing I, w- I would say is that it's more about being prepared, alert, but not alarmed, perhaps. And we've talked about some of the characteristics that we sort of like to, to think about here. So I'll, I'll rattle some of those off. I think from a personal perspective, keep a bit of cash on hand if, if you're a bit nervous. Make sure personally you don't have a whole bunch of debt, or if you do have debt, at least it's of a high quality debt. You know, you're not, you're not buying cars and handbags and stupid things like that on debt. That's, that's not good. And have a little bit of savings. For the companies that you're focusing on, it's all the no-brainer stuff. Super strong balance sheets, not much debt, loads of cash. Actual um, earnings. Actual earnings earnings is a really great thing to have offshore revenues is a little nice thing as well in case there's any sort of domestically sort of focused kinds of issues you've got a bit of geographic diversity even though you might only be on the asx um, the kinds of revenues that are very defensive enterprise software is the classic right i mean no one's gonna no big corporation is gonna rip the guts out of its heart and soul in terms of its its, its it infrastructure to save a bit of money in the next recession so you have very very dependable kind of earnings there i would also say this selling has massive tax implications so every time you're going to sell and you buy back, you know, this, I'm going to buy back in later on. Well, you've just lost, depending on your tax rate, a whole chunk of your capital that you need to have to make up just to get back to where you were. Which is something a lot of people don't think about. Um, 
when a recession does come and one will definitely come they always do it's going to get really scary i I would say most people in this market have no sense of what it's going to be like we talk about the gfc a lot that wasn't a recession um you know last time we had a recession unemployment was in double digit amounts like it lasted for the you know first half of the 90s really in terms of the implications the market dropped 30 percent in 1990 alone and took about four years to get back above that um you know it it was really 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 depressing um and so the other thing i think people think oh yes the recession's coming the market's down 20 percent. now i'm gonna buy there is never ever 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 a kind of a rush on these kinds of things um i think that you really just want to basically make sure that you dribble it in don't get too clever with timing keep your eye on the horizon that 10 years kind of out and i think it'll be painful but it'll also be in hindsight very rewarding if you can stay disciplined throughout that and continue if possible to contribute money in a disciplined fashion yeah i think you've nailed it i think uh, to me it all comes back to valuation so yes. if you're doing valuation and you're confident in what you're doing you shouldn't really be too afraid of, of any downturn because it's just going to give you better prices. Mm. But if you're kind of just going with the wind and um, just buying something because it's hot and someone gave you a tip, it's going to be pretty scary. Or something that looks yeah, cheap because it's down 90%. I, I mean, it could easily go down another 90% if, from if there, If there's right? one, aside from avoiding leverage, funnily enough, which is my top tip for staying sane in a recession, yeah. uh, the other thing I'd say is invest in your own knowledge and ability to actually value a company because... Mm you don't want the dependency that you need someone else to tell you what to do constantly. Like it's fine if you're in that situation, but it's a, it's a great skill to have. Yeah. I'll just add to that. I think if you do it yourself, then it gives you so much more confidence as well. Right. So it's mm. not just if maybe someone you happen to follow someone who's really good, but will you have the conviction to stick with that when it's down 80% or whatever, you know, like that, that that's exactly. what it allows you. And to another develop. really good point with that as well is that we, you know, there's this famous saying that no one rings a bell at the top. Well, no one rings a bell at the bottom as well. And people have this idea that to do really well, that's when you buy, you buy at the bottom. You're not going to know when you're at the bottom. And there was stuff mm. I was buying in the GFC that I thought was really cheap and actually turned out to be really cheap, but then it dropped another 30% from there. And you know, expect that to happen. You know, you're, you, you're not going to know the bottom until hindsight. It's not about picking the bottom. It's about, as Matt said, buying when the valuation is very, very compelling. Yeah, uh, I'll just chuck another two cents. So I think we talked about it a lot previously, but the, the things I look at are just leading indicators. You just Google leading indicators. A lot of those are the kind of consumer sentiment and big purchases. So like new car sales, um, big house sales. Not going well at the moment. <laughs> yeah, all those aren't going well, which is, I won't get into that again. But um, those are the things that I look at in terms right. of indicators. We are a little worried. <laughs> yeah, say, definitely. I, yeah. I think there's good reason to be concerned, but you know. Um, repeat everything i just keep said. smiling keep smiling <laughs> uh thank you very much guys we will put a pin in it there thank you as always to all of our listeners we enjoy your company each and every week uh we will of course be back next week with more three wise monkeys goodness but uh thank you very much for your company thank you thanks guys 